0: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Folklore Edition. It's Wednesday, August 5th, 2020. On today's show, Taylor Swift, you may have heard of her, she has a new album. It's called Folklore. We discuss with Slate's own music critic, Carl Wilson. And then Dana has an op-ed in the Washington Post, as befits Dana Stevens, it's a tour de force of hot volcanic rage. <laughs> about <laughs> That was so for you, Dana. Thank you.
1: My brand. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's about the dreadful lack of clarity surrounding school reopenings in the fall. And finally, uh, it was my week to pick our comfort movie, so I picked my favorite, I think probably my favorite Hollywood comedy of all time my man godfrey joining me today is julia turner who is the deputy managing editor of the la times hey julia hello hello and of course dana stevens who's the film critic for slate hey dana
1: hey greetings
0: greetings uh all right let's dive in step into the
2: world of power loyalty
0: Taylor Swift's eighth studio album is here. Folklore is a surprise both in timing and substance, I think. No one knew it was coming, and even if they did, I don't think anyone quite expected this. An album, 11 of whose 16 tracks were co-written with Aaron Dresner he of the band The National, also features a duet with Bon Iver. I.e., Taylor Swift has gone indie, but something more is going on here. She's approaching 30, or just turned 30, and I think it's fair to say is looking for a more mature sound, uh, music that engages adult life and sexuality with its equivocations and regrets. We have Carl Wilson here to talk us through it. Carl, of course, is Slate's music critic. Carl, welcome back to the show.
4: Thanks so much for having me, guys.
0: Uh, Before we dig in further with the discussion, let's pick a track. What do you want to hear?
4: To give a sense of how different this album can sound from what you expect from Taylor Swift, let's, let's start with a deep cut. Let's start with Epiphany. Keep
0: All right, Carl, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, Everyone, even Taylor Swift, has to be a bedroom pop star, so why not make a bedroom pop album? Here it is, so talk to me about it.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, this album was announced um, the morning before it was released at midnight the same day, um, which is a real radical break with the kind of, you know, military stage-style album rollouts that we've been used to from Taylor Swift. Always has done this in a much more conventional music industry way and so the surprise album was an innovation on her part and then what according to her own account and the account of uh, Aaron Dessner, her main collaborator um, she started this record in, in March and April just trading tracks back and forth with him and, and writing in quarantine and and made the whole album over the past few months which again is a kind of radical turnaround and this album follows from lover which came out last August. Um, Again, like a really unusual um, thing for her to put out a new album less than a year after the previous one. And there is this whole kind of slightly quarantine, homemade sound of it, although, of course, it's all made by real pros and and is very polished at the same time. Um, But And with that comes this kind of autumnal interior sound to most of the album. I mean, not all of it as... Somber as Epiphany, which we just heard, but still, um, none of it really designed for belting out in stadiums. But we're we're kind of missing the elephant in the room, which is that you know this album made with Deathner from the National, made you know dipping into the world of indie rock and even into sort of classical new music crossover um, with some of the personnel on it. This is the album designed. To snare Stephen Metcalf.
0: Um, <laughs> oh was, dear!
4: Is, is the main goal of this record is to is to win over um, the Stephen Metcalf of the world? So my main curiosity is whether it worked at all.
0: I think Taylor just needs to get get over it and move on. I have, um, <laughs> but I appreciate the gesture. Um, I'm going to throw it right back to the group. I thought that. Taylor Swift was a pop craftswoman who'd built a machine for flying above all of these outmoded attitudes toward authenticity in pop music, and she just capitulated completely, no?
5: Uh, you have to like buy your false understanding of her past career to, <laughs> to accept that arc. You know, I think there can be authenticity in pop and has been, and now she's experimenting with a different mode. Uh, okay. I mean, to me, the, the most, I, I will say... I was one of the Taylor bop fans who was like, mm, a little slow, this album, a little pokey. <laughs> I, I do like it. There's a lot of songs I like on it, but I'm not sure it has as much of what I go to Taylor for, which is, you know, lyrical attitude and attitudinal lyrics. But I do think her, something you observed in your review, that listening to her apply her songcraft to a more sophisticated understanding of human emotions is really interesting. And this is an album that makes me excited for all the albums to come and the ways in which she's going to continue to evolve as an artist. Um, I mean, I'd love to hear a clip from Betty, which I think has some of her kind of tight, interesting lyrics, but is is looking at a love affair from the perspective of the the jilter and the affair haver rather than the scorned woman and, and is interestingly more complex than some other things she's done. You heard the... From nets, You can't believe a word she says most times But this time it was true The worst thing that I ever did Was what
6: I did to you But if I just showed up at your party Would you have me, would you want me Would you tell me to go fuck myself Or lead me to the garden, in the garden Would you trust me if I told you It was just a summer thing I'm only 17, I don't know anything
1: yeah I'm glad you selected Betty because that, like a few other songs, including the one Epiphany that we started off with, does something that I don't associate with Taylor Swift, which is tell stories from a non-first-person point of view. Well, that is a first person, I guess, but it's the first person of a character, right? She's actually singing in the voice of this young man who betrayed his girlfriend in high school looking back many years later, and it takes a minute to piece that together as you listen to the song. You think... You know, is she addressing this to a woman because it's a lesbian love song? I took a minute to understand the story of Betty, but when it emerged, it's just it was fascinating that she was writing a sort of story ballad, you know, rather than a personal reflection. And Epiphany, similarly, is about her grandfather's experience fighting in the Second World War. So that it just seems like for the first time, she's starting to piece together these mosaics of, you know, historical narratives and fictional characters, rather than only being a confessional songwriter. Even though this, this does have a very personal feeling, this album, it really does feel like it was written in quarantine in a specific mood. I think you say in your review in Slate, Carl, that it's a little bit too much, you know, all mid-tempo ballads, and that it could do with some kind of tonal variation, but that does give it a real um, a moody kind of consistency. I mean, it, it feels like the cover looks, right? That black and white picture of her wandering in a gray mist in the forest. It has that kind of misty shimmering quality. Mm-hmm. I think that Mirrorball is one of the best songs on the album, and I wanted to hear a little bit of that. Um, I know that Mirrorball is the title of a Sarah McLaughlin album, and so maybe she's referencing that. But what I thought of when I listened to the lyrics to Mirrorball, which I think are really brilliant, um, was the Velvet Underground song I'll Be Your Mirror, right, which is this kind of ambiguity of what it is to be someone else's mirror. You're sort of showing them the best of themselves, right, but um, but since she's a mirror ball, a disco ball, she's also showing this person in fragments, and so it's sort of about the ambiguity. Is it good to be someone's mirror, right, or is it kind of a, a codependent, unhealthy relationship to say I'll be your mirror ball? Either way, I think it's a gorgeous song with incredible shimmering orchestration.
0: That song is such a naked play for my affections.
5: How how
1: so?
0: It just has all of the kind of signposts of like Indie Rock Steve, chopping Scallions, Putting on a Little Girl in Red, Little Phoebe Bridgers. (laughs) It's... It's like, it's in the ball, she got in the ballpark, I gotta say.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know, I'm always hesitant to throw around music critic terms because I always get them wrong, like genre classifications, but there's something kind of shoegazy about that sound, right, that seems to to throw back to, I don't know, like Mazzy Star type of vocals, which is not usually what you associate with Taylor at all. Um, yeah, definitely
4: definitely Mazzy Star, and then I was just thinking, <laughs> with Stephen and mind, like the Sundays, I think, very strongly bit. in that track, like it's like... It's that kind of like mid '90s twee indie sound um, really comes through there in other places, and it's interesting. Like there's a '90s feel overall. You know, we mentioned Sarah McLachlan, and there's kind of a Lilith Fair feel to this whole album. You know, and it, it, it's definitely drawing on that kind of bucket of sounds, um, mm-hmm. which seems almost like it's what emerges when you put The National and Taylor Swift together. Like in some ways, it seemed like it emerged naturally from that combination,
0: Carl. I have, a, I have a question for you. I do kind of like this album. I can't say I love it, but I, you know, I, I like Mirror Ball. I like that song. I like August. I like Hoax. I think Hoax is a great track. It's fine. I live in a house in which you know Phoebe Bridgers is worshipped like a freaking religion. You know, um, <laughs> it's my my fourteen year old daughter, my seventeen year old daughter, me, all of us. We just think what she's doing is kind of extraordinary. And if I want to go somewhere for darkness and equivocation in my music, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go, Lana Del Rey is doing something different. And yet there's a, there's a kind of pregnant vacancy and decadence to what she's doing that in its own kitschy, inauthentic way is actually quite authentic, or at least it's very specific to her. I feel like I'll tell you in a weird way, Carl, what I like about this record is I don't believe that Taylor Swift is a dark, embittered, troubled person. But what I really believe is that she's waking up to how much of her childhood was stolen from her by a combination of the music business, possibly her parents, global pop stardom. And she wants to be, I think sincerely, a real and grounded human being and sees some distance between this magnificent inheritance of her talent, charisma, and stardom, and that possibility, and in trying to bridge it, is 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 finding it hard, right? Like, she is kind of a person having a public identity crisis in her recent records, you know, and this, this one is like that. And identity crises are the source of immense amounts of creativity, potentially.
4: Yeah, Stephen, I think you're hitting on something really... True and important there. I mean, I've long listened to Taylor's music through the scrim of um, child stardom and what that effect that has on, on someone's life. And I think she has become, you know, especially in, in the documentary earlier this year, Miss Americana, she was very um, forward about reflecting on the, the problem that um, early celebrity can kind of freeze you in your development and i I think there really is conspicuous signs um over the past couple of albums of her trying to find her her way through that and i think that is part of the cause of a lot of the awkwardness of the last two albums which both had a lot of highlights as well but but really kept stepping into this gawky uncomfortable place where she was trying to push against the boundaries of what she found herself confined in and um and and in, in some ways that I found really uncomfortable. And this record, you know, I think all of the ideas that um, this kind of musical sophistication is new to her are false and um, posing her pop music against this more somber music and posing one of them as authentic and the other as non-authentic um, is the wrong way to read it. But there definitely is in the way that she tries to explore a wide range of perspectives here um, and in the the move she's making away from this kind of autobiographical prison that I felt like she's been in, you know, that she kind of entered into innocently as a teenage songwriter, and then felt, I think, more and more, you know, caught in a in a in a hall of mirrors, she might say. I mean, I think that's one of the things that Mirrorball is about. Um, there's this line in Mirrorball where she says, "I've never been a natural. All I do is try, try, try," and that's like one of the most um, honest and, and self-reflective things, I think she could say, you know, that that, that Taylor Swiftness is there and, and her way of exploring her way through that here is really memorable. And the thing that more than anything stands out about this album to me is it doesn't have those embarrassing moments where she doesn't seem in control of her own perspective um, that, that the last couple of albums have included.
5: Can I just say that this conversation is, is sparking for me a little, insight about why I love Taylor Swift so much and still love her even though this album is slightly less my jam. Like I love the trying. I love the awkwardness. The thing I find most alienating about music stardom is how cool music stars are. And I just don't relate to being cool and I don't aspire to be cool. (laughs) And I sort of distrust and dislike aloof coolness. And there's something fundamentally mundane about Taylor and her striving and her mistakes and her I know I know it aggravates people I can see it and I know that she's she's gone through you know postures of white female victimhood that are not good and I you know she's certainly not an unproblematic figure in all kinds of ways but just the the earnest strivingness of it I love <laughs> I just love that she's not Lana Del Rey and she's not Rihanna. I love Rihanna too, but Rihanna would just could slay us all with her coolness with a batted eyelash and Taylor's just so dorky. And I think that's fundamental to my what I love about her music. I still
6: believe but I don't know why been a natural all i do is try 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 i'm still on that trapeze i'm still trying everything to keep you looking
0: at me all right well carl is the uh music critic for slate carl Wilson, thank you so much for coming back on as always a total pleasure
4: it's been great to be here
0: All right. Before we go any further, this is typically where we talk business. I'm sure we have some. Dana, what do you have?
1: Yes, Steve. It's time to do this week's business. We have a few things this week. First of all, we want to let you know that finally at long last, after talking about this all summer, we are ready to talk about the book The Great Influenza by John Barry. This is a big... Thick, juicy history about the 1918 flu pandemic. It's uh, it's really fascinating, both in terms of, you know, comparing to our own present day and just as a a piece of cultural history in itself. And we are finally coming to the end of reading it. So we wanted to remind you all that if you want to finish reading it and be familiar with it by the time of our discussion, we will be talking about it on our next show after this one, which is coming on August 19th. So you've got two more weeks to read. And or listen to on audiobook The Great Influenza by John Barry. We think that's going to be a really good conversation. Next, in Slate Plus today, we have a special guest. I don't think she's ever been a guest on our podcast before, the wonderful Slate writer Lily Lufbro, whose byline I never miss on Slate. She recently wrote a brilliant article for us about the grim state of political discourse online, particularly on social media. Her article is called Illiberalism Isn't to Blame for the Death of the Good Faith Debate, and she's going to help us understand just exactly what is to blame. So that'll be our Slate Plus segment today. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can, of course, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. As we've talked about on this show since the beginning of the quarantine a 1,000 years ago, the current crisis has caused a real budget crunch at Slate, and this is why the Culture Gab Fest has been reduced to a bi-weekly schedule, along with some other podcasts that you might listen to at Slate, we don't want to be talking to you every two weeks. We would love to talk to you again every week. And if you want to help that happen, you can, of course, support Slate at any time. You go to slate.com slash culture plus to sign up for a membership. And there you will get ad-free podcasts, plus exclusive, plus only content and many other benefits. Once again, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture And we really appreciate your support if you can swing it. And finally, I'm going to take this opportunity in business to announce a little Slate event that I'm doing tonight, if you're listening to this on the day the podcast drops, on Wednesday, August the 5th. I somehow allowed myself to be shanghaied into a live hit parade podcast with our beloved Chris Melanfi, Slate's chartologist and pop music expert. He is hosting a music trivia contest online tonight, um, and it's going to include a lot of contestants from Slate, including Dan Coyce, a frequent guest on our show, uh, some other Slate-sters to be announced, and, uh, and I will be one of them no doubt dropping out very soon based on my very slim music knowledge especially pop um, but it should be great it should be a lot of fun it's at 7 p.m eastern time and you can watch it in a couple places facebook youtube but if you want information about chris melanfi's live hit parade go to slate.com live to learn more
0: Okay, so our next segment was occasioned by a piece in the Washington Post, an op-ed. Um, I should say all three of the panelists have school-aged kids, uh, different ages, but uh, they're all going back to school. It's already August, and yet how, where, when, in person, remote, exactly what this is going to look like. It's hard to believe the official estimates of, uh, of what that's going to be. Uh, it all feels very up in the air and very imminent. Uh, let me quote from this uh, piece in the, in the Post. We were and are incredibly lucky, says the author of Her and Her Spouse. None of us and no one in our extended family has gotten the virus. My spouse and I are able to do our jobs from home, though in one case with a significant pay cut. We have broadband access and enough functional devices to do Zoom school and work at the same time. Still, that semester of online schooling was a miserable experience that we would all give anything never to have to repeat. Let me check who the writer is. What's what? What's the byline of this wonderful piece? Oh my God! It's our own Dana Stevens. Dana, it was a great piece, and um, I'm psyched to talk to you about it. Uh, among the things I liked most about it is it was really a a, a kind of a Jer- angry Jeremiah ad about a broken social contract that had we had we reacted intelligently as a country to this virus, our kids would be going back to fairly ordinary school in the fall, but instead they haven't, and it's a uh disaster anyway what drove you to write those?
1: i mean it was actually julia you'll appreciate this because i know as an editor when you see writers on twitter raging about things or musing about things that you think would be better put in a piece you are always down on them for giving away the, the milk when the cow is free or whatever the expression or rather is.
5: up on them for helping me with my assignments but yes <laughs> never tweet writers if you want to escape assignments
1: Exactly. yeah, and you and Dan Coyce are always good at that, jumping on um, people who are who are tweeting about things that they should be writing about. And that was what happened. I mean, essentially, you know, i I was as many other parents slowly starting to realize, and this was probably two weeks ago or something, that that there was just no way normal school was happening and that there is no plan in place, and that it's all just this scattershot thing that's differing from state to state. And you know that essentially, rather than ending the epidemic, first and opening schools as a part of that plan that there is just this bizarre plan to shove teachers students and school staff into these potentially dangerous situations and pretend the pandemic is not happening so I wrote an angry tweet about that just to get it off my chest. And it went for, you know, by my standards viral. A lot of parents were obviously in agreement and equally furious about it. And uh, a, an editor from The Washington Post ended up getting in touch with me and asking if I wanted to turn it into editorial. So obviously not my usual beat to write about parenting or politics or anything like that. But it just seemed like this is something that it's so important to everyone in the country, whether you have children or not. it it will affect your life hugely whether there's regular school in the fall, right? I mean, that will affect whether your colleagues can come back to work full-time, and that will affect how safe you are walking down the street, right, With, with other people's kids and families who have been in these big group situations. And since I wrote and published this editorial, I mean, this this situation has only gotten more and more ridiculous. We hear all these stories coming out about schools that haven't even started yet, but just the teachers who are meeting in the summer to come up with plans are getting sick. And it just seems like every time there's a school situation where there's more than a few people in a space, even when they're adults wearing masks, being careful, able to comprehend and execute all of these various rules and plans, they're still getting sick. I mean, this is a, just a very, very contagious virus, as we should have figured out by now in the last six months, but seem to be still not clued into as a nation. So um, yeah, this is a big, wide open question. I'm curious what you all think about it. I mean, beyond this editorial that I wrote, just so many things have happened since then. And these questions are swirling around. And I wonder what your own thoughts are for your own kids, for kids in other places. And it just seemed like an opportunity for us to have a conversation, not just about our own particular relationships to our own particular kids' schools, but just to what school is or what it means what what do we want school to be in this in this new reality that we are unfortunately trapped in
5: i mean as someone who is i think psychically jewish and has thus found herself happy to be the mom the the you know atheist goyish mom of a jewish family just fall is the new year the new school is the new year like the 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 weird deflation of entering early August and having that feeling of like, ooh, it's getting dark so early without the concomitant. Let's get so many notebooks and let's get new shoes and everybody goes and and has a sort of fresh approach to like learning and growth and another level up in the game of life. Uh, It's a drag. The question I have for you guys though, I mean, we read a, a bunch of pieces in preparation for this segment, and I'm at once outraged at society for not having figured out how we can have school and then also looking at where the virus is now feel like maybe some of that outrage is misplaced because even though our school system is fundamentally inequitable and underfunded and overlooked and the concerns and desperation of working parents have not been a sufficient priority in the pandemic as have many other things not been a sufficient priority. Is there anything that could have been done? Like it just seems like we're fucked and we might have been fucked even if, you know, we had perfectly equitable schools and yeah, lots of time and resources. Like that's the thing I'm trying to debate is there's so much frustration, well, but I can't tell if the heat on this has to do with how botched it is or just how botched the world is. Well, I mean, there are
1: a- things there are things that could have been done to get back to the previous level yeah. of horrific inequity that we were at, right? I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. we we could have done something to get school back to how it was in March, not to say that that was a fair or ideal way to have your government school system run, right. but it just seems to me that even but still, there's, a, there's I mean, a clear. Yeah, we could have had a lockdown. We could still have a lockdown. I mean, oh, I feel like do, yeah. if you if you if you read epidemiologists writing about what's going on right now, they all say the exact same thing, which is just lock the entire country down for four to six weeks. Yes, yeah, exactly. Give us all money to survive. That's the key, right? I mean, the real problem is that nobody is getting any funding, and that you know these this ridiculous twelve hundred dollar check that we all got supposedly. I never received it for my part months ago, is supposed to somehow tide us over through this indefinite lockdown, all you would have to do is, and I I believe Jordan Weissman wrote something like this on Slate way back at the beginning of the pandemic in March, is float all businesses and all people for such time as it takes to get the transmission rate down low as it is in South Korea, right. Germany, all these places that are reopening. And then you can reopen schools, yes, with yeah. you know social distancing and with all kinds of measures, but you can open schools no problem. Yeah. No,
5: Sorry, and, I'm and, not just and, just to just quickly to clarify, I'm not saying that I don't believe that a lockdown would be valuable and drastically reduce the virus. I just am observing that around the world, even in countries that have done that well then everyone's like woo we're done let's go back to life and in in some of those places we're starting to see the virus emerge again which is giving me this defeatist air
0: right but this but the same mechanism mechanisms of containment that kept you know their numbers like infinitesimally small p- compared to ours can be reintroduced i mean they can do what's called the hammer and the dance you know, um, in ways that we absolutely can't, because we never contained it in the first place. I mean, any guesses what the total number of deaths in, say, Greece is? You know, whose public finances are a mess, and that, and I, I actually don't believe these things, but they're routinely they're lectured at for being the sick or poor man of Europe. Any guesses how many people have died in Greece? It's I don't 200 know, pe- un- 100
1: two hundred, under hundred, something depressing. T- no, it's
0: 200, 200 people. I mean, it, it's 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 just you know. It seems to me there are two aspects of this. First of all, I mean, once again, we proved the United States to be, you know, quote unquote, penny wise, but actually trillion dollar foolish, you know, as we were with the financial crisis. I mean, the thing that makes me really mad is actually on the far end of this, Julia, which is that, you know, As Dana says, had we a a robust and cogent public life in this country, we'd have a tiny fraction of the death and and dislocation that we currently have. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask perfectly ordinary people, just as we've asked doctors and nurses to be frontline heroes and and essential workers, to be frontline heroes uh, and take the hit for the rest of us. Now we're going to ask it of teachers. And frankly, of parents as well. I mean, we're essentially sending our kids into, especially those of us who have day student kids, we're sending them into these hothouse vectors, and then they're coming home on a daily basis, which also, by the way, completely freezes us in place. I mean, any attempt to um, expand your life or your pod or your ambit, your general ambit, is now limited by the fact that you are re-exposed on a daily basis. It's just worth being enraged by. I, I now, of course, maybe there's nothing to be mad about precisely, but in the run-up and in the aftermath, there's gonna be a ton to be volcanically angry about.
3: To
5: be clear, I am not against anger. I just am wondering if some of the despair isn't for the virus itself. But no, I mean it's 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 so revealing of a of a broken society. I'm curious what you guys think about This debate between the health of humans and the psychological and emotional and equitable health of children where, you know, that seems to be the tension. Is it worse to risk some death or is it worse to leave kids without resources, without stimulation, food, care, and the opportunity at advancement and improvement that education should provide?
1: I guess to me that seems like something of a false choice at the moment because that argument is being deployed in a very bad faith way by by the side that doesn't want to, to help or organize or provide any leadership. I mean, there is a very strong argument to be made that for poor kids, school is is such an important place that it's worth a certain amount of risk to get them back to that place. But the reasons that school is so important for, for poorer kids are all things that could be addressed with more funding and more support for those those families, right? I mean, it just seems to me that there aren't creative solutions being brainstormed for these things, one of which would involve, of course, giving up other parts of society, like having restaurants or bars or sports or whatever other things that we're prioritizing opening up instead. And another piece of it would be just figuring out creative new ways to do school. I mean, Justin Davidson, the architecture critic, who we've had on our, our show before as, as a great guest, was talking about public spaces and how we could be using all these empty theaters and empty, you know, bars. I mean, any place that's sitting there empty and unused could be turned by the government into some sort of ad hoc classroom or a place for teachers to meet off site. You know, there's we're not lacking in empty public spaces right now, um, but there's this continuing need to just... Cram kids into the same crumbling schools, or not to think about how to get laptops to kids who don't have laptops, right? I mean, instead of addressing societal problems on any kind of larger level, it just seems like there's a very narrow, unimaginative idea that we've got to cram everybody back into these same places. And when you look at educators who are writing and talking about this, I mean, it's tragic. You know, people are really, really panicking about what they're going to do when they're put back into these potentially risky, fatal situations in a matter of weeks, and the government's threatening to take funding away from schools if they don't open when they need just the opposite. It just is complete psychosis to me. I'm sorry, I'm still stuck in rage.
0: No, 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 it's all right. I I mean, Julia, just just to answer your question a little bit, I mean, I take your point exactly that there is some completely occult balance that each of us is trying to strike between literally obliterating an ordinary you know, developmental period of our child's lives. Their childhoods is literally getting this kind of weird blank spot on the map imposed on it and exposing them to the calculated risks of the virus, of the of pandemic. And it's not easy, right? And, and it's if the social contract in this country were stronger, I think it would be a less occult trade-off. I think it'd be a less perilous one, but also less up to the dim, personal, individual calculations of 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 parents, isolated parents, which is what makes that choice so in, incredibly hard.
1: I mean, just on a personal level, if you guys don't mind answering, I can say for myself that my daughter's school has given us a choice that we have to make by August 7th, whether she wants to do, quote, blended learning, meaning that she'll go in some number of days a week, one or two days, I think. Um, or or all online, and given that the numbers in New York of, of new infections are quite low right now, I mean we basically had our big peak already, right? So we actually are at the numbers that places like South Korea and Germany were at when they reopened schools with some success. So my inclination right now is to choose the blended, knowing full well that as soon as somebody gets sick in New York City, it's all going to fall apart, and uh, and that, as as it should, and everybody will get sent home. So maybe she'll get to set foot in her you know school of her dreams that she's never been to before Mm -hmm. starting high school at least one or two times before you know we're all locked down again that's that's where I'm at right now but what about you guys
5: we are getting near daily uh, updates from the school wavering back and forth You know, one benefit of being in L.A. is that the whole schooling outside notion is actually plausibly something that the school could do year round. And they came up with this whole plan and reclaiming outdoor spaces and changing the classes into smaller cohorts. And the, you know, a PowerPoint deck of the reopening plan came out one Friday morning and then four hours later they were like, never mind. Governor Newsom said it's too big a group. And then they said, never, never mind. Apparently some schools can apply for waivers and still open for elementary students. And then they said, never, never, never mind. That waiver is not available yet. So right now distance learning is our only option and we are bracing ourselves for a return to Zoomdom.
0: Uh, as of now, my kids are going back. It's the first year of high school for my younger daughter at a dream school. It's the last year of high school for my older daughter. Obviously these are huge Signal experiences in a young person's life They threaten to be wiped out, you know, hopefully they can go forward with some degree of normalcy. I I Do think it's got to be a hair trigger though to pull them uh, on the part of you know The state really and I given Cuomo's leadership. That's probably probably the case So my strong suspicion is they go back. There's an outbreak somewhere in the state and there's a retrenchment in their home again It's it's all I got all right, Dan, a great piece. It's called Held Back, an op-ed in the Washington Post, uh, July 24, 2020, as parents realize how badly the U.S. botched the next school year. We're furious. All right, moving on.
2: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com.
3: It's my little escape.
2: Now Judy's the life of the party.
3: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
2: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>
0: My Man Godfrey is the Depression-era classic from 1936. Like all the great screwballs, it's equal parts daffiness and heart. The movie stars William Powell as Godfrey, a man reduced by hard times to hobo status. He's living on the ash and garbage heaps, strewn along the banks of the East River, When one night, as if out of nowhere, some dim-witted socialites appear with a request, can he, Godfrey, accompany them back to the Waldorf Hotel as they need to find a, quote unquote, forgotten man, a tramp, to win a scavenger hunt? From this inhuman premise, Godfrey gets hired as the family's butler. And in their otherwise frivolous household, he quickly establishes himself as the lone voice of reason and conscience uh, in the joint. Let's listen to a clip.
2: Do you mind telling me just what a scavenger hunt is?
6: Well, a scavenger hunt is exactly like a treasure hunt. Except in a treasure hunt, you try to find something you want. And in a scavenger hunt, you try to find something that nobody wants.
2: Mm. Like a forgotten man.
6: That's right. And the one that wins gets a prize. Only there really isn't a prize. It's just the honor of winning because all the money goes to charity. That is, if there's any money left over, But then there never is.
2: Mm. Well, that Mm. clears the whole matter up beautifully.
6: You know, I've decided I don't want to play any more games with human beings as objects. It's kind of sordid when you think of it. I mean, when you think it over.
2: yeah. I don't know. I haven't thought it over.
6: (laughs) I don't like to change the subject. Would you tell me why you live in a place like this when there's so many other nice places?
2: You really want to know.
6: Oh, I'm very curious. Mm.
2: It was because my real estate agent felt that the altitude would be very good for my asthma.
6: Oh, my uncle has asthma.
2: No. Well, now there's a coincidence.
6: Well, I suppose I should be going now, shouldn't I? It's a good idea. I well, to see who won the game. I suppose it was Cornelia again. She probably got another forgotten man by now.
2: You mean if you took me along with you, that you'd win the game? Is that the idea?
6: Well, I might if I got there first, but after seeing what you did to Cornelia, I'm not saying anything.
2: But you'd win if you got back first with me.
6: It'd be awfully nice of you, but I don't like to ask.
2: Let's
0: beat Cornelia. All right, Daniel, let me start with you. This movie has uh, quite the pedigree. In addition to Powell, who I think is probably best known for playing Nick of Nick and Nora in the Thin Man movie series, the incomparable Lombard, maybe the great screwball comedian. Uh, It was directed by Gregory LaCava, who made Stage Door the following year, written by Maury He wrote Night at the Opera, one of the great Marx Brothers movies. He wrote other things for the Marx Brothers. There's kind of a madcap energy to a lot of this movie. Curious whether you knew this film and if you did, whether it was in your pantheon like it is in mine.
1: Uh, I did know it. I had not seen it in so long that I, I didn't even remember how it turned out. I mean, it felt like a completely fresh viewing experience for me because I think I had seen it in, in college, maybe at a screwball retrospective or something like that. So thank you for bringing it back into my life. It's such a, a perfect little charming gem. Um I don't know if it would make it into my absolute, absolute top pantheon. There may be some other screwballs that I hold even more dear to my heart, but it, it has that Lombard-Powell connection that it just is what makes it so incredibly special. You hear it even just in that brief little sparkling clip that we listen to, the, the chemistry between the two of them. And I absolutely love the backstory, too, that they are ex-spouses when this movie is made, which I had never known. They were married until... Three years before this movie was made, I think, and then split mm-hmm. amicably. Then, when William Powell got this part, he was the one who said, "You've got to cast my ex-wife Carol Lombard as the uh, the socialite who's in love with me." And so, just knowing that backstory, you know, makes their their chemistry all the all the more charming.
0: Yeah, Julia, it was it was apparently it was a challenge for Lombard to play this part because she was a incredibly precise actress, a very smart woman and this person's a remarkable ditz with a as we heard in the clip, an extremely disconnected nonlinear thought process. And she had to work to do it. I she kinda I think she nailed it. what do you what'd you make of this movie?
5: First of all, I am so glad to have watched this movie. The laugh per line ratio yeah. is like certainly above one to one. Like the density of the jokes here I think sometimes when you watch older films you feel like the pace of American entertainment has been accelerating from slow to fast in an unbroken line since the beginning of mass media. And you watch something like this and you're like, nope, it's cyclical. Like the rhythm here is so fast and so mm-hmm. snappy. And obviously that's what screwball is known for. But you know, do you, it just makes you think about something very joke dense like 30 Rock and realize like, oh right, this is all a throwback to the craft that they were making here. I think.
6: Godfrey's gonna be our butler. He's going to be who's butler? He's going to work for us. Oh, that's ridiculous. You don't know anything about him. He hasn't had any recommendations yet. Well, the yet. last one had recommendations and stole all the silver. Oh, well, that was merely a coincidence.
2: People who take in stray cats say they make the best
5: pets, madam.
6: I don't see what cats have got to do with butlers.
5: So just for sheer yucks per minute uh, and the quality mm-hmm. of those yucks, highly, highly recommend uh, for the clothes... Good God, extremely gorgeous fashion designed to look ravishing in black and white. Good God. And then there's one thing about this film that felt I would keep it out of my all-time pantheon, but maybe there's a different way of looking at it that would pop it back in, which is it doesn't feel like it has the basic block and tackle of the romantic comedy quite because there Mm. are a bunch of moments where the film seems to signal – strongly, that Daffy, slightly annoying, Irene, the Carol Lombard character, who's a delight. I mean, just the line reading on My Uncle Has Asthma is, you could laugh for days about that. Um, But she's she's, she's, she's not a charming ditz with a heart of gold and actually a steel trap in there. She's just like a lunatic also. And so it's a little hard to actually root for the romance. And then there's a number of moments where the Godfrey character and the bitchy sister, Cornelia, sort of glower at each other and it, the structure of the film feels like it's setting you up for that romance and then it just never happens mm. and and there's a part of me that's like, this is so weird. it's like a perfect film except for the start, like this the way it's signaling its <sighs> yeah. pitches is off. And then you think, oh, but they were inventing it. like they were inventing what the romantic comedy on film was. and so it's not all obvious how you'd block it out like it it I, I don't know I, it's it's I, I wonder if I'm alone in that, but I found. The Cornelia performance kind of fascinating and the film, the ending surprising because the film seemed to have been signaling something else for much of its duration. Yeah, I mean,
1: I don't want to give away the ending, but when I said, Steve, that I hadn't seen this since college and it had things that surprised me, that included the ending. And I was not at all sure... I didn't actually ever think that he would get together with the bitchy sister. That seemed like she was always meant to be sort of the foil um, to, to the Carol Lombard character. But the Carol Lombard character, while completely delightful, is so immature <laughs> and so yeah. kind of not not ready for prime time in terms of having like a real relationship. Yes. Whereas William Powell's character, of course, in real life, they had been married and he's 16 years older than her, right? And a much more experienced um, actor and, you know, experienced human being. And that comes across in his character who's this incredibly urbane butler he's just such a tip of the iceberg character right where you mm-hmm. never really learn that much yes. about his past or his motivations but you see you know his his erudition his culture his kind of hard-won wisdom you know all of that stuff is just right on the surface of his character so even though you root for them in the sense that you know they're absolutely charming and adorable together you also really feel like you know this this irene the uh, the carol lombard character really needs some seasoning in the real world
6: Hi, are you the new
2: butler? Don't you remember last night?
6: Well, well what happened to Godfrey?
2: I'm Godfrey. Oh,
6: well, you look so different. What happened to those nice whiskers? Uh, turn around, let me look at you. You're the cutest thing I've ever seen.
0: To the extent that the movie is sort of about the... It's about many things. I mean, it's made in the depths of the Depression on the assumption that it probably was in development in the very early 30s. It was at the very beginning of FDRs you know, tenure and the kind of hope that he was inspiring for, you know, salvation out of the, you know, out of the economic um, disaster of the times, you know, it's it's definitely made in that spirit. And in that spirit, the movie is very much about, you know, the idiocy of, of privilege, in a sense. And I think, it, having now seen it three or four times, five times, maybe in my life, and just adoring it as a perfect movie, I, 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 I see what you're saying, um, Julia and Dana, but he, I think he sees a ray of kindness in her that even she can't quite see through all of the n- nuttiness that's been instilled by privilege into her. And um, and also, oddly, the arc of the movie is almost her getting him to melt away a little bit from his high-mindedness and nobility. You know, I mean, there is a way in which he's absolutely this, you know, New Deal-era superhero right? A person who understands how wounding social class has been to the country, how the rich have screwed the rest of us, and what kind of commitment to public works it's going to take to rescue us. I mean, it's almost like a New Deal propaganda film in some not so subtle way, in ways that I admire, actually. But it's also about how kind of cold and remote he's become and one of the peaks below the surface into the bulk of the iceberg that we get about Godfrey Parks, who's truly one of the more remarkable characters in American cinema, especially as played by Powell, is that he's been romantically wounded, like so badly romantically wounded that it made him remake his life from the ground up and and his worldview. And, um, and in a way, you know, he's trying to get, her to see her and all of them to understand their frivolity, but she's trying possibly to get him to understand how Empyrean and r- remote he's become from his own emotional existence.
5: Thinking about it as a Depression era document and as a piece of New Deal propaganda is really interesting too, right? Because you meet you know the the ragman in the dump, but for the ragman to be the romantic hero, he's he has to have actually secretly gone to Harvard. It's also a little bit unclear whether he's in the dump because he was so thrown by his romantic travails that he actually slipped down the economic ladder to a point where he had to live in the dump. But my interpretation was more that in a fit of peak, he rejected high Boston society and yes, just decided to live in the dump and is a little bit um, kind of p- poverty. Tourisming, Mm -hmm. which, you know, one could problematize if one were so inclined. Um, But I have to pause for a moment because of my interest in the Cornelia character. I did a little research on Gail Patrick, the actress who plays her, who has the kind of presence and hauteur of someone who I assumed to be a slightly bigger star. That wasn't a name I had known. Gail Patrick played uh, sort of bitchy brunettes in, in a number of films, but then went on to become one of the first female executive producers in television, was an EP of Perry Mason for most of its run, was the only female executive producer in primetime for a bunch of that time. Apparently, and I learned this through Wikipedia, not my own employment, was the Los Angeles Times Woman of the Year twice during that stretch. Um, And I just love, you know, looking at the after effects of these these long lives. So anyway, watching the movie and envisioning that, uh, future for Gail Patrick charmed me too.
1: Oh, that's that is that's so awesome to know about Gail Patrick. But that also places in really sad contrast how foreshortened Carol Lombard's life was because she died. I mean, as is you know, the part of the Carol Lombard legend in a plane crash. Only I guess six years after this movie was made, right? I mean, still in the midst of her, her, the prime of her star career, and it's just such a tragic loss when you see her in something like this. There's no other comedian from that time who has quite the same energy as her. And I learned also in our research from this that the word screwball, apparently if you trace that meaning of the word screwball associated with this particular genre of comedy, was first used in relation to Carol Lombard. I believe in this role that you know one of the critics writing about the movie at the time said something like, the screwiest of screwball danes or something like that and you know that sort of became associated not just with with her but with this whole style of comedy
0: Mm. all right well the movie is uh, called My Man Godfrey it's uh, I think we all pretty much loved it and it's very easy to find streaming it's on Amazon various other places check it out would love to know what you thought of it
5: all right I think I'm up for Core Watch next time and my pick is Network another movie with fantastic clothes, among other fine qualities. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a discomfort movie, but one of the greats.
5: Well, I had to redeem myself after Center Stage.
0: Bite your tongue. That's a great movie. I loved it.
5: That, if, having persuaded you of that uh, is my greatest cultural achievement as a critic. All right, onward.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
0: All right, now's the moment in our podcast uh, when we endorse Dana. What do you have?
1: Steve, I have an endorsement that I think you are going to enjoy on, on several counts. Um, it's two things together. You know how they do cocktail chatter on the political gab fest, right? What they would talk about that weekend over a cocktail. So I have actually a cocktail chatter this week, rather than an endorsement, and it is about a cocktail. I'm endorsing my own invented cocktail, which I helped um, co-invent with a friend of mine who is a mixologist and bartender, and um, you know, purveyor of, of alcoholic beverages. He has a little Instagram live show where he has guests on to um, to help invent a drink, and we did that, and also named our drink. So I'm going to describe that drink and endorse it, and talk a little bit about how it got its name. Um, my drink is called, and Steve, you have to you have to name that source, my drink is called This Lime Tree Bower My Prison. Familiar?
0: No. Why am I, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed, I can't get it.
1: This Lime Tree Bower My Prison is the title of a Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem. And uh, it it is a poem about, it's a very pandemic-friendly poem that's about uh, something that happened to Samuel Taylor Coleridge when he was hanging out with his friends. I think that maybe Wordsworth was there. Charles Lamb, the literary critic, was definitely there. They were on some sort of country retreat where they were going to go walking through the lake country together. But unfortunately, Sam Coleridge's wife spilled a pan of scalding milk on his foot (laughs) this is all the backstory to the poem and uh and so he couldn't go out he was he was stuck um, at the at the house they were staying at while they all went walking in the i guess you don't have moors in the lake country but walking by the lakes and feeling sorry for himself stuck at home with his scalded foot he wrote this poem called this lime tree bower my prison we have to say that his prison sounds pretty pleasant sitting in a lime tree bower (laughs) waiting for his friends to return really any kind uh, of bower but nonetheless, um, it's, it's, it, just, it just struck me as a very pandemic-friendly moment, right? Poor me, stuck here, I might as well enjoy my Lime Tree bower. and um, so I decided that I would make a drink called this Lime Tree bower that is based on lime cordial. So I'll give you the recipe for the drink, and then I'm going to read a tiny bit of the Coleridge poem. Um, have you ever made cordial, either of you? It's this really fun thing to do at home. You can basically make your own Rose's Lime Juice that's better than Rose's Lime Juice, and it's extremely easy.
5: Mm. So all
1: you need to do um, is have a two-to-one ratio. It doesn't even matter how many limes you have. Just have twice as much lime juice as water and boil them down together on the stove until the lime juice reduces. I guess it depends on how much liquid is in there. But basically, you know, you keep on stirring it as you cook it until it's sort of syrupy and seems to be reduced by about half. Then you sweeten it to taste. You know, just keep on putting sugar until it's as sweet as you like it. And... Then you've got your, your cordial, and it keeps a really long time. You can put it in an airtight jar. I think I made mine back in early July, and it's still perfectly good. I just had some last night. And it's this wonderful mixer that you can have with everything. If you don't drink alcohol or you don't want to drink alcohol that day, you can mix it with you know soda water or, or tonic or some sort of bubbly thing. Um, or you can mix it with basically any spirit. And because I'm a brown spirits person, I like to mix it with bourbon or rye whiskey. Um, and it's, it's delicious. Then throw in like a basil leaf or a mint leaf if you have that for a garnish, and it's a perfect drink that will indeed become your prison because you will not be able to stop making it every night. So um, in honor of my drink, which I'm very proud of with its name, I'm just gonna read the very beginning of this Lime Tree Bower My Prison. <laughs> Well, they are gone, and here I must remain, this lime-tree bower my prison. I have lost beauties and feelings, such as would have been most sweet to my remembrance even when age had dimmed mine eyes to blindness. They, meanwhile, friends whom I never more may meet again, on springy heath, atop the hilltop edge, wander in gladness, and wind down perchance to that still-roaring dell of which I told, and only speckled by the midday sun. It goes on and on in that uh, poetic mode. But I, I love that he's, he's just so tragic about being stuck at home in his lime tree bower with his scalded foot. So uh, when you're sitting in your lime tree bower.
5: It's like elevated moping. <laughs> yeah, mm.
1: exactly. <laughs> he's just feeling so gloriously sorry for himself. So I, I really recommend the poem and the drink together uh, in your own lime tree bower this weekend. And I should also just mention before I wrap up the endorsement that my friend who is a bartender who has this really fun Instagram live show is named Michael Ciccone. And if you want to follow him on Instagram, he's at The Mobile Mixologist. You need the the because Mobile Mixologist is some other thing that's not as wonderful. The Mobile Mixologist, Michael Ciccone. And if you follow him on Instagram, you will see that Monday, Wednesday and Friday evenings, he has these little make a drink with a friend shows, which are uh, both a fun way to come up with new drink recipes and just really good watching because he's a big charmer.
0: Oh, perfect. Um, Julia, what do you have?
5: I want to make a recommendation, which may be a repeat recommendation, but um, it is the. There were a lot of late '90s albums and references called to mind in the reviews of the Taylor Swift album. There were the Cardigans. There was Sarah McLaughlin. The album that I thought of with a number of these songs is "Strand" by the Spinanes, which is probably one of my top ten all time their lyrical style is a little bit more elliptical and less confessional than Taylor's but the the kind of air and slowness but intricate rhythms and um, something about the quality of the melodies in strand were one of the call one of the niche callbacks to me of folklore and it is just a fantastic album that if you have not spotified it up when i have mentioned it previously as i'm sure i have i would commend you to check out the song winter on ice and put it on whatever your current playlist is i think it would be a really good quarantine listen it's good ambient cut the onions music as steve described it so strand by the spenanes i
0: uh, love the spenanes that was heavy heavy rotation grad school listening um uh, all right, well, I'm going to endorse an essay in the Point magazine online called Publish and Perish by a philosopher at, I believe, Northwestern University. I'll check that, Agnes Callard, C-A-L-L-A-R-D. Um, she is, this essay is about the fate of philosophical prose at the hands of academic philosophy, that as philosophy has become more uh, professionalized, more disciplinary, I guess, more attached to academic departments or more hyper-competitive when it comes to publishing in order to self-advance. Its prose has gotten worse and its concerns have gotten narrower. I mean, it's not an unfamiliar complaint exactly, but she herself writes so incredibly beautifully and with such directness and clarity that it's clearly this cry for what philosophical writing was and could be. I mean, after all, part of what you want to do is you, you first have to convince a potential reader of philosophy, someone who has no professional or academic obligation to actually engage with it, that the problem that you are attempting to at least understand, if not solve, is actually an urgent one. Like step one is saying, wow, like what, how do we reconcile the fact that we have a first person conscious point of view with our notion of a third person objective reality? What's the relationship between, you know, solipsistic experience and our notion of a world that exists independent from us. Or, you know, or, and if we don't resolve that, don't we have this problem or that problem? Or what's the relationship between justice and equality? Or, you know, on and on and on, right? Like, that's step number one. Well, as you professionalize philosophy, step number one gets lost. Instead you are slicing the pie thinner and thinner and thinner down to the last molecule in order to find an area of unexamined specialty. Um, And then you're addressing yourself to uh, hyper-professionalized peers, and so I thought this was a, a really beautiful plea on behalf of a clearly very gifted young philosopher to, in some ways, at least attempt to um, recapture that capacity for extraordinary thought as captured in ordinary speech or ordinary language, and um, Okay, I double checked it. Uh, Agnes Callard is actually at U Chicago, not at uh, Northwestern. Anyway, it's a lovely essay. It's in the point. It's called "Publish and Parish." And uh, check it out. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank
3: you,
1: guys.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We do love it. Please, please do if you're inclined. Uh, you can interact with us on Twitter. That's at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon.